Since the election of Trump in uh, 2016, there's been much discussion about how divided America is. And one of the great divides is between rural and urban America. Uh, One votes for Trump, one votes Democrat. One is racist, the other isn't. One struggles economically and the other is thriving. One has drug dependency issues and the other does not. But my next guest questions the validity of the stereotypes and argues that rural and urban America has a lot more in common than they or we realise. And uh, missing where the real divide is, is bad for policy and for the country. Elizabeth Currid Halkett is Professor of Public Policy at the Price School at the University of Southern California. Elizabeth also holds the James Irvine Chair in Urban and Regional Planning. Now, she's written a book challenging the great rural-urban divide called The Overlooked Americans, The Resilience of Our Rural Towns and What It Means to Our Country. And she joins me on the line from her home, which these days is in California. Elizabeth, welcome. What first made you question the basis of this uh, urban-rural divide? Well, Phil, um, first it's a pleasure to be with you uh, today. Um, I was born in West Virginia, and I then grew up in small town Pennsylvania in a town of maybe four to 5,000 people. And, you know, I went to undergraduate in, in Pittsburgh, and I went to graduate school in New York, and then I'm a professor now in Los Angeles. Um, but, you know, I, I always go back to my hometown, and I remember it fondly. And it was really very formative for me. And I remember after the 2016 election that the media that I was consuming, you know, the New Yorker, the New York Times, um, the podcasts I was listening to, the dinner parties I attend with my friends in New York and Los Angeles, it was this idea that this was the great rural reckoning and that rural America just hated liberals and coastal elites and voting for Trump was really just sticking it to us. And it just never sat with me because my lived experience in small town America was first of all, a lot of pretty decent people kind of just like my friends in, in cities, you know, just human beings existing in the world. And, And also, I just never got this sense that they hated anyone. Now, as a social scientist, you can't just say, well, that was my experience. I mean, it's not a memoir, you know? So I I decided to find out for sure. And and that involved a lot of data crunching and talking to people. So, okay, how do you go about investigating your, well, your not so much your discovery as your suspicions of this disconnect. Well, so I had a big plan. I mean, I started doing interviews in 2018, but then in 2019, I was really formalizing the book and 
and I had a baby at the time, so I had to wait a little bit. So it was 2020 when the plan was to drive um, across America with my family and visit people in various different small towns. But of course, in 2020, the pandemic rolled onto our shores and the whole world shut down. And so I couldn't do what I had planned to do. Um, but in a in a weird way, what I ended up doing, which was basically what researchers call the snowballing technique, which is that I got a few contacts and they weren't always, like my mom helping with people I'd never met. And then I had people who I peripherally knew get me other contacts. And then when I'd interview those people, they would get me people. And literally this just made, I traveled all around the country by phone talking to people. And, you know, one of the things that was extraordinary, well, it's actually two really extraordinary things about this. The first was that the telephone actually allowed it to be more than just a drive-by, you know, like I would talk to people on the phone for hours and then I would call them back. And so we had this whole dialogue going on and, and some of these folks I still talk to, you know, years in. And then um, I also didn't know what they looked like. And that was really a kind of amazing accidental strength of this approach. So you discovered that Hillary's uh, deplorables weren't as advertised. But a question... Are you sure that you got a good cross section of uh, of American people for your interviews? Because, uh, as you said, most of them were conducted over the blower during COVID. Are you confident that uh, they were honest with you? Not not saying what you wanted to hear. That is a great question. So the the short answer is yes. And I'll tell you why. So first of all, they sometimes said things I didn't want to hear. (laughs) So, you know, we weren't on the same page the whole time and, you know, they would not be getting, you know, there were folks I talked to who weren't vaccinated and I would suggest it and they would, you know, be completely against that. Or we wouldn't see eye to eye on, you know, issues of marriage equality. Um, There were issues of immigration where, Folks were not anti-immigrant by any means, um, but they didn't embrace the same progressive values that I necessarily do around these issues. So it was one thing was that they were ve- the folks I spoke to were very comfortable saying what they wanted to say about any you know myriad topic. The second thing um, is that <clears throat> with some of these issues, there's actually some quantitative data, and I. In particular, I used the University of Chicago's general social survey. And that actually corroborated really beautifully with what they said. So there really wasn't that much of a mismatch between the qualitative answers folks gave me and what the quantitative data um, was was showing. So there was there was a that was kind of that was very unifying. Now, my day job when I'm not uh, interviewing fascinating Americans is I'm a farmer and I've spent over half my life on farms. I live in a very small community of about uh, 100 and I hope none of them are listening because I have to say that my neighbours tend to be more racist than my friends in Sydney. You didn't find this? I didn't find this at all. And I point blank asked folks about their views on racial equality. People felt very aware 
of racial inequality in America. Um, and, you know, America is a different place, you know, so we have, you know, racism is such a huge problem in this country um, and racial inequalities in particular. The one thing I would say, and I wouldn't say that this was um, racism, I would say that folks in rural America were much more likely to, at least in terms of the qualitative interviews, not necessarily survey data, um, say that they felt that resilience and self-reliance was really important. So their appetite for social policy writ large was less than I think you would find in cities. You do point out a paradox that very often the poorest Americans are the most likely to attend school with blacks. Yes, well, of course, in the South, you have much more integration. And in fact, I interviewed a really interesting man who had grown up in the South and then moved to the, North, the Northeast. And, and he, you know, he described a conversation with a white professor in his, you know, his, you know, small town who said, oh, you know, some, something came up and he said, oh, you know, my, my best friend from home is black. And that the professor said, oh, isn't that neat? And this guy, I mean, he was really smart and insightful. He just said, it wasn't neat. It was normal. Like, and so he, he kind of pointed out a, a paradox that we see in America a lot, which is that progressive affluent cities are often very homogeneous. The, bu the bubble, the places where a lot of educated white progressives live tend to be some of the most homogeneous neighborhoods in the country. Now, you were probably not surprised by the uh, Supreme Court's decision on affirmative action. Would you say the approval for affirmative action is uh, low amongst all groups? Uh, you know, it's complicated because when you look at the data uh, on affirmative action, you do see that, I, and I don't have the exact percentage, but it's something around at least a half half of Americans are not supportive of affirmative action. Um, and so, you know, how it cuts by socioeconomics and geography is complicated. So when you look at some of the data looking at how this, you know, is parsed out by geography, you do see increased support in cities and less support in rural areas. However, when you look at the question, and this is, again, the general social survey question uh, or survey data from the University of Chicago, when you look at direct questions about social policy and interventions, government interventions and, you know, prefer preferential hiring for minorities and women, the top groups to support this is the least educated folks in rural America. So it's really a lot of contradictions in that. But I, I think in some ways, those seemingly contradictory answers reflect, I think, a lot of the conflict around affirmative action that we see in this in, in, in the United States, you know, that it's not really straightforward how people stand on it. Elizabeth, the uh, perception of racism in rural areas was intensified under Obama when people were called racist if they didn't vote for him. And I suppose, in a sense, the reverse was the same in relation to Trump. 
that people were called racist if they did vote for Trump. Yeah. Yeah. So that is true. Um, and I, I have a problem with that. I mean, I'm a, just so you know, I'm a very serious card carrying member of the democratic party. (laughs) I interned for Senator Clinton. So these are not my politics, but I think we have to be careful with this kind of monolithic description of people who voted for Trump. I mean, one thing that's that is true is that rural America has been voting or white white working class America which is predominantly in rural America has been inching more and more conservative with each election cycle. So, you know, we don't have the counterfactual, but I'd be really interested, you know, would we have as much vitriol for the voter who voted for a different Republican. Now, look, Trump has done a lot of, he's caused a lot of mayhem in our country. So I'm not, I'm not in any way supportive or apologizing for that. But I, I, I sometimes wonder if we confuse Trump with the people who voted for him. You, you make a powerful point when you say the the sanctimonious liberal elite is very alienating for rural Americans. It's terrible. It's I I think it is one of the most corrosive uh, variables in our country, and I think if we want to fix any of the perceived divides in this country, I think that liberals have a responsibility to not look down on people who are not like them, who don't possess the same cultural capital as them. I I think that is so crucial. Let's move on to the issue of democracy itself. Do rural and urban Americans still have faith in democracy? Yeah, so the, the, the numbers are pretty interesting on, on democracy. Most Americans, I mean, first of all, so qualitatively, who I, you know, the people I spoke to were very much supportive of our country, supportive of each other, um, fellow Americans. I mean, I would point blank ask them how they felt about folks who lived in cities or Democrats. And they had no, there was nothing negative about people. And and the the data on this reflects this, that there's a real support for the institution of democracy. Um, the problem is actually that I think people have lost faith in the system and they've lost faith in, faith in our politics. And they believe that politicians and the media stoke a division. So then it becomes a kind of manifest if you continue to, if, if we are continually told that there is a divide in this country, then in fact, that's somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, because we absorb the information we get is, is from media who's telling us that that's the case, you know? I've got to ask you this, Elizabeth. In your experience, how did the uh, the, the Supremes' uh, cancellation of Roe versus Wade play out? Were there significant differences between urban and rural? So you know, I I had finished up the bulk of my interviews before that decision came out. But you know, if you look at the data and if you look at the the referendum in Kansas. And um, you actually find that a lot of Americans do support. I mean, something, I think this is a Pew Research Center um, poll, something like 80% of Americans support some form of um, 
of, of abortion rights. You know, I mean, it's a spectrum, you know, but, 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 but that tells you something. So, and I think what happened in Kansas and, you know, the rejection of preventing women's right to choose, um, I think that's really indicative of the fact that there are plenty of rural conservative places where, where a lot of us are on the same page. Okay. Now, what did the people you spoke to blame for the, the for the divide? You've already mentioned media. Is that top of the list? That's top of the list, yeah. They, I, I will be honest with you, Phil. I, I mean, I, there wasn't a single person I spoke to who was anti-liberals. In fact, a kind of one thing that, that came up was that they've, they rural Americans felt that liberals didn't like them or thought that they were backward or, you know, just country folk. Um, that was definitely more the perception. There is a large divide between rural and urban America and uh, about what they see as the role of government in their lives. Isn't there? I mean, more rural Americans had uh, a streak of individualism. They wanted the government out of their lives. There is this, there is much more of a sense of self resilience. Governments, you know, please leave us alone with uh, rural Americans for sure. Um, there's a couple of things going on there, though. Um, the first is that rural Americans have not had, I think, the very clear social. Um, interventions, they're not at least as obvious in rural America as they are in urban America. And so I don't, I don't always think that rural Americans feel that the government is there in a, in a social sense. I mean, I know we can talk about subsidies and so forth, but in terms of actual social policies, in terms of education, they're, they, I don't think, I think a lot, a lot of them feel that they are on their own. Um, the other thing that's interesting is that you know, in a more kind of, if we think about most people being moderate, which I think is the case, like 80% of Americans are moderate and we, we focus so much on these tales. Um, but those aren't typical Americans, you know, most Americans have a healthy, um, balance between government intervention and, and, um, government giving people their space. And I actually found that even amongst I mean, this is a funny story. So I was interviewing uh, a twice voting for Trump Republican in Milwaukee, a doctor. And then a few hours later, I interviewed a progressive public defender. And, you know, honestly, if you looked at their responses to the same questions, because I ask everyone the same questions, they looked identical and including their response to where the government should be in their lives, which is both of them said they've got to, you know, protect civil rights. They've got to, you know, uphold equality. Um, and I really want them to let me live my life. <laughs> it was like the same response from these totally different people. I've got to ask you this because it's such an issue in my country and that's uh, climate change denialism. Did you look at that at all to see how it uh, is playing out in uh, rural and urban? So I asked people about their views on climate change. And there were a few folks who gave me a, well, climate changes response. 
um, I mean, most people weren't climate change deniers, but, but yeah, there were a few people who were a little more skeptical that it was not kind of just a purely natural phenomenon. Um, but I will say, if you look at data on, on how rural versus urban people feel about the environment, you actually see that their responses are largely the same. So about half of both rural and urban Americans feel that not enough is being done for the environment. Um, Over 60% of rural and urban Americans feel too little is being spent on the environment. And about 40% of rural America and about 50% of urban America are concerned about environmental pollution. So, you know, they're more on the same page than you might think. Okay, I'd like you to tell me about Shannon from Kentucky. Oh, Shannon. Um, So Shannon was and is one of my favorite um, interviewees, if one can have them. So she is a um, twice-supporting Trump voter, uh, partial to conspiracy theories. She didn't get vaccinated. She's wary of marriage equality. She's wary of progressive. She's uh, wary of climate change. Wary of climate change. (laughs) Um, The whole nine yards. Um, And she's literally anathema to my worldview. I mean, we could not be more different. Like zero, we on zero percent. But she's got some nice aspects, doesn't she? So that's what was so, this was actually a really kind of an intellectual and emotional breakthrough for me, which was that I I felt so much cognitive dissonance because I liked her so much. I like her so much. I mean, this isn't past tense, but in terms of the book. Um, and I, I couldn't square the fact that I found her political belief system so different from mine, and yet I fundamentally liked her as a human. And and this wasn't irrational. I mean, yes, I think we connect with some people more than others. There was a rational part of this, which was that I remember when I asked her what she would do if she had all the money in the world. And I asked that question to everyone. And people tell you all sorts of things like pay off a mortgage, buy a boat, you know, retire, whatever. And she said, I would do two things. I would, I would buy an orphanage for all the children who have lost their parents to drug addiction, because Shannon's in Appalachia, where opioid addiction has been a huge problem. And then she said, and I would also buy all of um, the recovering drug addicts new teeth, because they lose their teeth from drug abuse. And you can't smile if you don't have teeth. There are many parallels between our two countries, but uh, one we don't have is the same level of religiosity as the United States. What are the levels of religiosity uh, in rural America? So on paper, religiosity between urban and rural America don't look that different. Um, virtually the same number of people are spiritual uh, versus, or, and religious, um, even things like how many times people pray a day or attend church services throughout the year is, is not a million miles from each other. But what I came to realize was that religion was a mu- had played a much bigger role in rural society. It's a huge part of the cultural capital of rural America. So it's where community is. It's where events are. It's where you learn knowledge about your neighbors and the community. 
And it's just not the same in our cities. I mean, you can go to church on a Sunday, but you also can go to a museum or an opera or, you know, have a whole kind of other very secular form of cultural capital. And, and I realized it personally because everyone I spoke to in rural America was so forthcoming about their faith and their relationship to God. And I realized that even though I know my friends are Jewish or Muslim or Protestant or Catholic, I didn't know how they felt about God. I just knew their cultural <laughs> religious affiliation. Uh, you may be surprised to learn, Elizabeth, that Joe Biden is listening to us, and I want you to give him some advice. How could the Democrats get a better share of the uh, rural vote? I think that rural America, that I think, and particularly President Biden is in such a perfect role for this because he is, you know, he's an American, he, he is born and raised in this part of the world that you go in to rural America and you actually listen and you don't get a soundbite and you don't just do a poll. You listen and you understand where people in rural America are coming from and you don't judge <laughs> because that is the only way that you get anyone to be a part of your club. I mean, no one is interested in joining a club where they feel looked down upon and laughed at. And the Democrats need to sort that out. It clearly transcends economic and rational reasons. I don't want you to give any advice to the Republicans, but thanks for coming coming onto the program, Elizabeth. A fascinating <laughs> oh, encounter with Elizabeth Current Halkett, the James Irvine Chair in Urban and Regional Planning and Professor of Public Policy at the University of Southern California. And Elizabeth is the author of The Overlooked American, published by Hatchet. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.